to the podcast series from Square Mile Behind the Screens, hosted by me, Jock Glover, Strategic Relationships Director here at Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. As you know, in this series of podcasts, we like to meet members of the investment teams from across the asset management industry whose funds at our analyst rate and spend 15 minutes or so chatting to them to get some insight into their thinking. This week, our guest is Steve Voorhis, who is Director of Research and a Portfolio Manager at Dodge & Cox. The Square Mile Analyst rates two. Thank you, Jack. Very nice to be here. Nice to see you again. Last time we talked, we were doing a company ESG update. I hope that today's chat will be a little less intense and have a slightly different slant to it than, than last time we spoke. Um, but it's nice to have you here. Um, this is the first time that we've had a head of research slash analyst, uh, someone with that sort of background on the podcast. Um, and I know you're a co-portfolio manager as well at Dodge & Cops. Um, last week's question, last week's uh, podcast, we were left a question for you for this week, which was uh, 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 an easy open, I think, for you guys. Do you think we've seen a long-term rotation to value investing from here? So I'm going to start our chat with that as an opener. That is a great start. Uh, short answer is we certainly hope so. Uh, our funds have always paid close attention to valuation and making our investment decisions. And so if you look at uh, the companies that we own, they've got a pretty clear value tilt. Um, And thinking about that question, growth clearly had a long period of outperformance after the global financial crisis in both the US and Europe. Um, That's very unusual compared to prior periods where value was generally doing better. Um, A lot of that outperformance was driven by expanding valuations of growth stocks, uh, we think driven largely by very low interest rates. Um, And that continued until 2021 when valuations got to extreme levels of 30 times earnings or more for growth stocks. Um, That did start to reverse somewhat in 2022. Um, As interest rates went up, some of those valuations started to come down and value stocks had a good year, uh, but we think there's a long way to go still. Uh, the gap in valuations between growth and value is still among the widest it's ever been. Uh, the PEs for growth stocks are about double that of value stocks. Um, and so we think there can be many years of our performance still to go for value. And just, just so just on that, um, the expansion of the valuations for those growth stocks over the last few years, driven by low interest rates, we're obviously into a higher interest rate environment. Do you as a house have a view that those interest rates are going to stay higher for longer? Do you think that the Fed is more or less at the top of its rate cycle and it's likely that that'll start to drift down or, or, or do you have a view on that or not? So as a as a firm, we try not to put too much weight in our ability to predict macro events or uh things like interest rates. Um, And so we try to build a portfolio that can perform well in a variety of different environments. Um, And uh, looking back historically, though, we we think it's unlikely that we'll go back to the zero level of short-term interest rates. Um, And so if that's what it would take for growth stocks to outperform, then we feel pretty good about continuing to own value stocks, which are supported by very robust earnings, better dividends, and and we think a pretty good long-term outlook at this point. So looking at companies that have got um, the, the ability to keep generating their revenues uh, and their cash flow, even in a higher, uh, not necessarily very high, but a higher rate environment than we've been in for the last 15 years or so. Exactly. And as a team uh, of analysts and portfolio managers, how does that all fit together? And Because you're obviously, you wear two hats, you're direct research and you're a co-portfolio manager. How do you work all that into the portfolios? 
Yeah, so the way we work at Dodge & Cox is we have a team of analysts internally, about uh, 25 people who spend their time covering industries, meeting with company management teams, doing deep research into companies to make sure we understand companies and industries as well as we can, um, and try to find companies that are doing poorly for some reason, but where we think things can get better. Um, and then we have each of our funds managed by a team of portfolio managers who work together as a group to construct the portfolio and pick the stocks. Um, and so my role is as part of the team in managing those two funds. Um, and then as director of research, helping sort of manage the effort, mentor the analysts, think about changes to our process and so forth. Have you, okay, so I'm going to ask you a question that uh, we hadn't talked about beforehand. Uh, changing the process, given that value had such a long period of underperformance, and I know that hurt some of your fund performance over time, and then you've had this reversal where you've obviously seen value uh, start to outperform, your three-year numbers look pretty good now. Did you as direct research think, oh, no, we're going to have to rethink what we're doing here, or do you? did you – you know, how did you deal with people who might be wavering after a 10-year, 15-year bull market for growth stocks? So it's not the first time we've gone through this. Uh, my career, for better or worse, has been long enough that I was here during the late 90s when we had the initial growth stock bubble. Um, and we had the same questions back then of, of uh, you know, have we lost the plot? The world has changed. You have to do things differently. You have to, to adapt with the times. Um, but we stuck to the same tried and true philosophy and process of looking for undervalued companies and thinking about long-term earnings and cash flow relative to current valuations. Um, and so we had a few years of underperformance and then the market turned and people cared about valuations again. And we had a wonderful period after that. Um, and so we've done the same uh, for the last uh, five to 10 years, um, not wanting to be completely stuck in our ways and thinking that always about how can we evolve and improve and get better at what we do, um, but certainly not changing the basic building blocks of caring about valuations, caring about the long-term outlook and building a portfolio from the bottom up. And, and so how do your analysts get those ideas that they've identified? How do they pitch them to the portfolio managers to get them into the portfolio? How does, how does that work, that, that dynamic? So the analysts will write a pretty detailed report uh, outlining what they think of the strengths and weaknesses of the company and the key points of the investment thesis and the risks. Um, and then we get together as a team and really dig into that, do our internal due diligence or underwriting process. Um, we appoint another analyst as the devil's advocate, and they'll write a report explaining why we should not invest in the company. Um, and we try to make sure we've asked all the important questions and turned over all the rocks and understand the company as well as any outsider can. Um, and then we compare it to other possibilities within the portfolio and think about in a portfolio context, what risks does it offset or add to within the portfolio? Um, compare it to other ideas we have in other sectors or parts of the portfolio, um, and then make a decision about whether it should be included. And if so, how big of a position? So it's a pretty it's a pretty time intensive process. We spend a lot of time thinking about our investment ideas, but our turnover is typically fifteen to twenty percent in the portfolio. So our average holding period is about seven years. And so if you're going to own a stock for seven years, it's worth taking a few weeks up front to make sure you understand it well. I like the idea of um, having a devil's advocate. That's some you know appointing someone to try and really unpick everything that some analyst has spent the last three, four, five, six months <laughs> building together. How often does a does the devil's advocate win in that situation? Or are they or are they there just to make sure that you've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's in terms of the research piece? It it comes out fairly evenly. I wouldn't necessarily frame it as a competition and a winner and a loser, uh, but probably about half the ideas that analysts recommend 
get into the portfolio and half we we wait for a lower price okay go back for go back and wait for it to look better value before you go for it because of whatever risks have been identified exactly okay um and so at the moment given that you've obviously had a long period of time waiting for value to come back value has come back now where do you uh, as a portfolio team where are you finding your best ideas and themes and where do you see the future opportunities um as investors i mean maybe some ideas in terms of sectors or stocks even if that's possible sure so i think at the level of themes probably the two big things that we see in the markets today and that are reflected in our portfolios one is that big gap between value and growth that we spoke about the other is a big gap in valuations between us and non-us stocks um and so the us market is very expensive compared to other markets trading at about 19 times earnings where ex us markets are about 12 times earnings um and so again we are building the portfolio bottom up but as we look company by company industry by industry more and more often, we find the opportunities to be outside of the U.S. And so our portfolio is tilted quite heavily relative to the benchmarks outside of the U.S. In terms of current uh, ideas in the portfolio, uh, no surprise, given what's happened in the world, we find a lot of interesting ideas among financial stocks. And so that's a big overweight in the portfolio. And there's a lot of different things within that from Indian banks to U.S. brokerage firms. Um, but then in thinking about future opportunities, sort of things that are just evolving now. I think one of the most interesting ones is uh, natural resources, so mining stocks in particular. There's um, a huge long-term demand for metals to fuel the energy transition. So we'll need more copper and nickel and cobalt and lithium and other things to fund, to, to make batteries and windmills and so forth. Um, but it's very hard to get new mines permitted. Uh, and mining firms have a lot of pressure from shareholders not to develop new mines and instead to give the cash back to shareholders. So we're seeing very little expansion of capacity, even though everyone acknowledges the long-term demand is there. Um, in the short term, there's a real cloud because obviously we're we're looking at possible recession in both Europe and the US coming up soon. Um, but if there is a recession and that causes mining stocks to get cheap in the short term, uh, that could set up a fantastic long-term opportunity. We we started this um, chat talking about doing a, an ESG conversation that you and I had. And it's very important not to conflate ESG with responsible investing. But there are people out there in the world who might be saying, you know, buying lots of mining stocks at the moment is not great. And then there's other people saying, well, we need to have the mining stocks because we need to transition to this new lower carbon environment. Um, so as a team of analysts or a, as a portfolio manager, how do you um, square that circle in terms of, is it just based on the price or are you worrying about, you know, mining's notorious, you know, 25, 30 year capex, et cetera. How, do, how does that all fit together? Yeah. So on the ESG level, I think it's a question of balancing the local environmental impacts of a mine, which can be significant if they're poorly managed, versus the global level question of emissions, where clearly we have to do something. And there's no way to shift from a fossil fuel-based economy to one based on renewables without significant metal inputs. Um, and so what we're looking for is responsible mining companies that have a track record of executing well on the local level and dealing with local communities, dealing with tailings, uh, dealing with uh, water emissions and so forth. Um, and so I don't think it's necessarily in opposition. It's just a question of managing those risks well. Um, and then you know, on the CapEx side, that's obviously uh, uh, something we 
than thinking about it in terms of the financial statements. And we're not opposed to companies investing as long as there's a good expected return on that investment. Um, and so it's a question of meeting with the management team, doing your due diligence and, and understanding which companies are investing wisely in good projects and which companies are investing just for the sake of growth. Thank you. Um, so I suppose I'm going to just ask, given all of that, uh, and given the themes and the fact that you know things are working pretty well in your favour at the moment uh, as investment managers, um, what what keeps you up at night? What worries you? What what do you where, where, where do you worry and think? Oh Christ, I've got that wrong. Or what what are the sort of or the is it the government? Is it regulatory? What or, or what is it? <laughs> So uh, there's there's plenty of things to worry about. Um, I'd say at one level, it's the macro events that are very hard to predict, um, but they can have a big impact on the portfolio and on the markets. And so we try to build a portfolio that is robust across a range of different scenarios, but things happen that you don't expect and you'd have to just try to, try to deal with it. Um, so... The Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example, was not something that we expected or predicted. Um, it turns out in that case, our portfolio was actually relatively well positioned um, simply by happenstance. And so we were owned energy stocks and fertilizer producers, and that part worked out well. Um, tensions between the US and China over Taiwan could be the next flashpoint. Um, that might be more of an impact on our portfolio. We do own some Chinese stocks, and so that would hurt us. Um, and thinking about you know what things could happen and and how can we be prepared for that in advance is part of what keeps me up at night. Um, the other issue that has become a little bit more of a question and and maybe will be the question that I leave you with for next week is thinking about um, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a field that's been developing pretty quickly and how it impacts the economy broadly and how it impacts us as investors specifically are two questions that I don't have great answers to at the moment, but that we're uh, spending a lot of time thinking about. I was at a conference on Tuesday where the economist who was presenting the start of that on was talking about artificial intelligence and how we were going to have to work out how to tax the robots uh, <laughs> to, to, to create the revenues that may be lost from human productivity, from people losing their jobs and, and roles. So. I'll leave you with that as a thought to keep you up <laughs> as well. Um, okay, last question, I think, is um, do you have an interesting statistic from this week? Is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners in terms of, wow, wake up, pay attention to this? Uh, well, so maybe continuing on the theme of artificial intelligence, but in a slightly more positive way. Uh, I used to be the analyst who followed the pharmaceutical industry and still uh, keep in touch with that a little bit. And there's hope that AI can be a huge boost to drug discovery, uh, which is a notoriously difficult uh, process where billions of dollars are spent and not uh, not a lot comes out. Um, but there's an estimate that AI may lead to the discovery of 50 more drugs over the next decade than we would have had otherwise. Uh, and so... Maybe amidst all the bad things from AI, 50 new drugs that can be addressing unmet medical needs is a, a wonderful thing. That's a pretty big number, isn't it, given how long it takes for some of these new drugs to get through the pharmaceutical approval process? Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Listen, Steve, uh, we've run out of time. Um, all that remains is for me to say thank you so much for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Um, so Steve Voorhees, Director of Research at Dodge & Cox, thank you very much indeed for your thoughts and insights today. And again, to you, the listeners, for your support. Um, I said every week I'm waiting for someone to do it, but if you want to contact us, please do get in touch through our webpage, which is www.squaremileresearch.com, or by emailing us at info at squaremileresearch.com. Well, thank you for inviting me to join today, Jack.
podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast. Remembering past performance is not an indication of future performance. It is published by and remains the copyright of Squaremart Investment Consulting and Research. Squaremart makes no warranties or representations regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This podcast represents the views and forecasts of Squaremart at the date of issue and may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute a regulated activity or an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity, and it is not a recommendation to buy or sell any funds or investments that are mentioned during this podcast. Thank you.